Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June 2nd, 2022. Seems to be an eternal day. It's gone on forever. <laughs> Many hours ago, I interviewed my old friend Pete Weiner the author of Death of Politics, one of America's leading writers uh, from a, a very civilized Republican standpoint. He's the author of The Death of Politics. And we talked about the death, I guess, of political conversation in America, both on the left and the right. Terrific. The increasing intolerance in America for people of different opinions and the absence of debate. This is a theme we've dealt with in lots of different ways over the last few weeks. We also talked to Francis Fukuyama. Everybody knows Fukuyama, the author of a new book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. Fukuyama worries about the death of liberalism, the death of tolerance, the death of debate, the absence of good arguments. So it's really good today that we have uh, a young man who not only makes good arguments, he's a debating champion, but he's also a supporter of the idea of good arguments. His name is Bo So, and uh, he is currently uh, a law student at Harvard, but he's quite distinguished in many different ways. I think he's the debating champion of Australia, um, and he's a man, I think, very much committed to the idea of debate fueling healthy democracy. Bo, welcome. How central is debate, do you think, for well-functioning democracies and how much bound up in the crisis of American democracy is the crisis of conversation and debate? Well, G'day, Andrew. I've been looking forward to it. Um, and thanks so much for having me on the program. For me, it's not so much that debate is important to democracy so much as debate is what democracies aspire to be which is you have a bunch of people living together who have sometimes irreconcilable differences. And the health of our democracy is measured in large part by our ability to manage and to channel those disagreements to the better of the collective um, rather than as allowing it to be the kind of the source of division that it can be. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get into it. Um, in terms of how that bears on contemporary politics today, but the differences between people, and these are political differences, of course, and sometimes they're racial and sexual, other things, but the differences that just exist between two people, just in the fullness of who they are, can become more or less threatening depending on our capacity to be able to talk across that distance and to be able to come to some shared understanding and in some instances to collaborate um, towards a better solution together. And so part of the reason why I wrote the book and the reason why I think debate is important in this moment in particular is because it's a way to make the differences between us a source of strength rather than of weakness. Bo, you're a, a champion debater, so you stand across other debaters, you take them on. When you look in the eye of your debating opponent, 
you think to be a good debater, you need to get beyond, you mentioned ethnicity, sexual identity, gender. Do you need to get beyond that, particularly in our age where we seem obsessed with the color of somebody's skin or their gender or their sexuality? That's a very rich question. Um, I wouldn't quite go all the way on this getting beyond framing because in many instances, those differences were the basis on which people were excluded from public conversation. And they do in fact bear on um, in many ways where their ideas come from. Now, having said that, debate is a little bit unique in that you're, for example, in, in, in the kind of purest form of competitive debate that I was engaged in, you're often assigned a position that you may or may not believe in, and you're told to uh, put forward the strongest possible case for it. And in some ways, it is kind of indifferent to the identity markers that you were talking about. Now, that's not the only thing we need in our public conversation. And there are modes of disagreement and moments that require the kind of the embodied experience of people. But I do think debate adds something else to the table, which is sometimes we want to not be free from it or apart from it in any way, but to have a little bit of room to experiment and to, um, and to separate ourselves a little bit and to separate our egos a little bit from the content of the ideas that we're discussing. So it's not the only thing that we need, but uh, it may be the kind of thing that we need more of um, in this climate. I was intrigued in your book that you bring up a debate, which I didn't know that much about, the kitchen debate between Nikita Khrushchev and Richard Nixon in, I think it was in 1959 or 1960. What was the kitchen debate? And what does that tell us about the value of debate in terms of how it teaches us to listen and to be heard between these two characters, Khrushchev and Nixon, neither of whom naturally one thinks of as particularly tolerant, open-minded, or intellectually adept men. I'm not sure about if people think they're not intellectually adept, but but I, 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 see, I see what you mean. Um, it was a kind of an incident during the Cold War where there were all these sort of cultural propaganda on both sides. And one of them was an exhibit of a kind of a, uh, of a model American home um, in Moscow. And it had been transplanted to Moscow. And Nixon was vice president at the time. And these two leaders kind of came face to face and had a disagreement in front of cameras about it sort of began as kind of quibbling about the exhibit, but it got into deeper questions about which model, which political model was superior. And I actually use the debate um, to highlight the abuses of debate and the kind of the sneaky maneuvers people tend to pull. And maybe this is what you're talking about, Andrew, of some of the more unscrupulous, um, at least political tactics of, of, of these two men. And I see it as almost a kind of an older version of the Trump-Clinton debates where you have, and, and I wanted to use an older example because it defamiliarizes things a little bit. And they have all these moves like, you know, dodging the point that was at hand or 
twisting the words of the opponent and and uh or just saying no rather than putting forward an advocacy of your own and in the book i try and diagnose or to analyze those moves as closely as i can because those are the same tactics that workplace bullies schoolyard bullies um and maybe more importantly that we ourselves sometimes use when we're feeling threatened and insecure or angry and uh so i use it as a kind of a case study to see these tactics and movements of bad debate in motion and give readers some tools to resist them well uh last week i did a show actually earlier this week with again an endless week seems it's gone on forever with uh, the the uh, washington dc based scholar and expert on china china hawk aaron friedberg he argues that china not russia is our greatest threat are being the west the united states it's an ongoing debate of course friedberg seems to think that um <clears throat> that Xi in, in China represents a kind of reincarnation of, of anti-democratic Leninism, as there is a new Cold War between the United States and China, and they represent very different kinds of government, very different kinds of thinking about politics, rights, community, citizenship. Yeah. Do you think it'd be healthy to have a series of debates uh, a la kitchen debate between Chinese and American politicians? I think it would be, Andrew. I, uh, I, I studied in Beijing after graduating college. and um, You grew up in Australia, is that correct? Yeah, very confusing. I was born in, born in Korea, grew up in Australia, and then went to college in the US. Um, and then I went over to China. And it was a kind of a... a, a an ex sort of a cultural exchange. It was started by Steve Schwartzman, who's an American um, businessman, obviously. And it was meant to be a kind of a cultural exchange between the US and China and, and those of us from um, the other countries. And uh, it, it, it started at a moment of a kind of a high watermark of optimism about um, being able to engage China, to be able to mutually cooperate, um, frankly, to be able to do business together, probably. But uh, while I was there, um, the trade war began between the two countries. The National Congress, um, where the Chinese president abolished term limits, happened that year. And what had begun as this kind of high watermark of optimism sunk um, to a real bottom. And it was really striking to see that because within the building where we were living together, there were these kinds of, um, the kinds of discussions that come about from living together essentially, because we lived in the same dorms between um, people from different countries, but between Americans and, and Chinese and, and people from the rest of the world. And, you know, one thing that struck me at the time was that the Chinese students had an incredible kind of double vision, really, because many of the elites were um, educated in the West or had done master's degrees in the West. And 
had had done the kind of the work of cultural translation um, in a much more considered way than many of us who grew up in the West um, and just sort of stayed in the West. Um, and and I remember thinking that's too really the must be to the great strength of this country that there, there's this generation of hopefully upcoming leaders who had that um, that level of understanding. But I think the tide has kind of gone the other way, hasn't it? And um, and the and whatever bridges um, that had been formed and and that that people were benefiting from have closed in a lot of ways. So um, that's really kind of sad on a personal level, often um, because it just means um, it's not as easy to see your friends and so on. But I think it's also a loss to. Um, to the kind of cooperation and, and, and mutual learning that could happen should those channels be open. Bo, you bring up bridges. I remember uh, Bill Clinton endlessly talked about bridges. Um, <laughs> a good, are good debaters bridge builders or people who blow up bridges? I, I tend to think the latter. You you write in your book about an, uh, an incident which I actually didn't know about or I sort of half remember. It's a really interesting incident. When Malcolm X came to Oxford Union, uh, came to the Oxford Union in, in 1964 uh, to debate about I extremism, one doesn't associate Malcolm X as a bridge builder, and yet he's remembered as a great man, a great political thinker, and I presume a good debater. Um, was Malcolm X a bridge, a bridge builder? And, and should one be a bridge builder if we're going to win debate championships? Um, I do th I do think that. Um, and I'm not flogging an infrastructure program, so I'm going to talk about a different kind no of... No bridges to nowhere, but... <laughs> What's yeah, we're building, building back better. Um, <laughs> in the book, I talk a little bit about um, not that particular Oxford debate, although um, uh, James Baldwin also famously debated um, Buckley... Um, in the same chamber and, and, and it raises some similar themes, but you know, the, the story that I tell about Malcolm X is he's debating James Farmer, who's a kind of a leader of the civil rights movement um, to which Malcolm X was reacting against in some ways. And they had um, amazing backstories where Malcolm X had trained in prison as an inmate um, on the debate team that competed against local universities. James Farmer was trained by one of the great debate coaches um, who was kind of memorialized by Denzel Washington in a movie um, called The Great Debaters, I think. And one thing that I saw there is there was the public altercation and these guys held nothing back um, in their debates against one another. But while that was going on, there was also a kind of a back channel where they would engage after the debates or go to each other's houses. And there's a lot of kind of scholarly work suggesting that over time there was some, not convergence per, per se, but a kind of a nuancing and an ad addition of some texture to both people's views through this process of conversation. So... Uh, even in the instances where there is 
a kind of a really extreme moment of direct conflict. Um, I often think that kind of moment of candor, even if it doesn't kind of look like a bridge building moment, often is a precondition that's required for genuine connection. And the reason why I think that is because proximity often masks a lot of things and us kind of getting along and smiling together um, is not really the basis for intimacy or genuine connection. It's just a kind of a sort of a chaste getting along for the sake of getting along kind right, of thing. Well, you're talking to the right person, Bo. I never is that smile. Right? So, yeah. That's true. I think I that is the, it might be the modus operandi. That's the famous line in the, the Dylan song about never smiling for 20 years. It's interesting that you talk about uh, James Baldwin and Martin Luther King. I did a show earlier this week. Again, this week is endless. With a wonderful uh, young writer, Anna Malika Tubbs, who has a book called Three Mothers, the mothers of Martin Luther King, who also was a good debater. Uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned him in your book. Malcolm X and James Baldwin. Did you, I mean, you're a good debater. Did you have a good mother? Do you think to be a good debater, you need a strong mother? Do mothers teach children to debate? Is this something that can be taught, reared in healthy families? I do have a good mother, and that wasn't me pausing um, to think of the answer to that. <laughs> um, I don't know if you need a good mother, but did you debate her, or did she always? Did you always agree with everything she said? You know, she. In my instance, it is the case that she was a debater, and that um, you know, my grandfather was a kind of an extraordinary person who read the second sex to her in translation, and 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 said. Um, you go out and, and, and tell people what you really believe about things. And I think it got her in trouble a few times, but it was the right thing to do. But yeah, and it's know, interesting that yeah. uh, I'm not comparing your mother with Malcolm X's mother, but Malcolm X's mother was Louise Little, who was uh, very influenced by Marcus Garvey and his ideas. So certainly having a strong intellectual mother is probably quite helpful in terms of producing, nurturing good debaters. I think it can help. And, and so, I mean, certainly it takes a lot to debate, right? Like it takes a lot to kind of put yourself out there in that way. And I don't know if it's a precondition, but, you know, the, the, the sense of having parents who say, um, we love you, you're worthy in some way, and um, now go out there and, and, and do your thing. Um, I think that can be very helpful. And, and I, 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 I don't know, obviously family is the, kind of the most um, immediate and, and maybe the most, uh, certainly the most familiar way of doing it. But imagine having a society where there are lots of enforcement mechanisms like that, whether it be the education system or something else that says, um, this is something that you can get something from rather than dissuading them uh, from raising their voice in that way. Yeah, and it's interesting you talk about being an adult. Earlier today, I talked to Julie Lithcott-Haynes, the author of Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And she's a great critic of helicopter parenting, this parenting which <laughs> is always telling children how wonderful they are. In your view, is making a good argument, the ability to teach teach us to listen and be heard, is that a, a form of growing up, both individually like and politically and collectively? I like that a lot. Um, I mean, I, 
one experience of being a debater that that people don't often talk about is you just lose all the time. You just lose and lose and lose because at some point the competitions become knockout and the world championships have 500 people in them. So 499 teams lose, right? Mm. And and uh, certainly feels like these days being an adult is just taking some L's <laughs> along the way. And, uh, uh, and But more seriously, the experience of putting yourself out and being told that you are less persuasive on this occasion. Um, uh, I think that that was very formative for me. You know, I think it does instill a kind of a humility. Um, and uh, as long as it doesn't break the spirit, it, 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 it does feel a lot like maturation to me. Uh, the best debaters, of course, learn something from defeat. As you say, the first debate between, and I know you write about this in the book, well, the first debate between Romney and, and Obama, 2016, uh, according to CNN anyway, tr Romney trounced Obama. Maybe that's a slight mm -hmm. exaggeration. Mm -hmm. But then Obama came back. Mm -hmm. Debating is all about learning, isn't it? There's, no, there's never a, a final debate. I think that's right. I think that's right. And... Uh, and even when you, whether you beat someone or you lose to them, you know, you'll probably face off against them again, right? If not the next week, the next month, then the next year. And again, to go back to where we started our conversation, that is in some ways a description of what democracy is and what, um, parties competing against one another, factions competing against one another is we are always jostling we're always trying to get ahead uh but we know that the ability to keep playing that game requires a set of rules and a commitment to um to kind of coexist um and in terms of the other thing uh, the learning point the other thing i would say is one thing debating does is it decouples in some ways the idea of being right and the idea of being persuasive. So it's not as though Obama had like different political commitments in the second debate than he did in the, in the, in the first debate. Um, it's that he mustered, um, to be fair, I mean, he had other stuff going on at the time, but um, as you might if you're president, but the idea that it's not just about getting the correct answer, but also about being able to communicate that in a way that is most persuasive. Um, that's another thing that I think is quite important about debate. What about sex, Bo? I mean, I don't mean literally sex, but uh, <laughs> sex appeal. I know one of the champions in your book of contemporary <laughs> debating is the French president, Emmanuel Macron. He was on my show a few years ago. Right? Looking, well, looking and he was very sexy. sexy and bearded. And he, he's a good debater and, uh, and certainly committed to open discussion, but he's also a very sexy guy, both for men and women. Do, do you need to sizzle a bit? I mean, you've got a bit of sizzle about you, it seems. Oh, but you're hitting on me already, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> Wait till uh, we meet him. Wait till we meet in person. There's only the continental US separating us at this point. Um, uh, 
it i guess it depends on what your version of sexiness is and and for me some of it is um someone who's comfortable in their own skin and i think and that's my in all seriousness that's macron that sort of gallic openness love of intellectual jousting there's something uh there's something very attractive about that i think yeah i mean i would say um and and uh, if you've ever been to a debate competition, Andrew, I don't know if it's like... No, I, I always lose debates, even with my wife. I don't know if it's traditional sexiness that carries the day necessarily. But, um, uh, but you know, one thing I do like about debate is um, that those kinds of really human elements like sex or charisma or just the kind of the thrill of performance, like the activity doesn't shy away from that. You know, it's not sometimes with these kinds of um, civil conversation or, or, or having rational discussion and so on. There's a lot of like, you need to kind of be an angel to engage in that. Um, but I think debating doesn't shy away from the fact that it's a contest, for example, that there is kind of self disclosure and conflict um and those are things that make the activity really very human i think you bring up the h word bo human okay <laughs> can we have debate in the post-human world i know you deal with that in your book uh you're appearing on intelligence square the u.s version some very close friends of mine associated with that uh, with them i work i've worked with them a lot in the past They've worked with IBM on IBM's uh, Watson AI algorithm, um, and they've even had a debate with that. Is the future of debate AI? Can we have a post-human form of debate, Bo, or is debating essentially human? I think it's essentially human, and um, that that video is really worth seeing. And I spoke to um, Noam, Dr. Noam Slonim, who's one of the leaders of um that project debater which comes in the tradition of you know deep blue that took right. on gary kasparov in chess and the the jeopardy champion um that competed against ken jennings this was their latest project as a company and in some way the only debate i've ever won in my life was with gary kasparov who got really annoyed and stormed off so is that true i didn't play chess i would have lost that one but certainly one can debate him i'm not sure if good chess players make good debaters yeah, maybe not. They'll always be t trying to take your queen. <laughs> um, uh, so the oh, and the, so the machine was, you know, um, it, it was much better than Harish, who was a kind of a contemporary of mine on the debate circuit, who was like representing all of humanity. So, for example, it has unbelievable um, ability to recall information, um, to marshal a huge number of studies in its favor. But there are elements of reading the room, of being empathetic to what the audience might need to hear from you at a particular time that I'm not sure it, 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 it hasn't been able to replicate um, in my judgment. But one thing I'll say about that, Andrew, because I know you, you write about this kind of thing is I worry a little bit about the ways in which we humans um, make our arguments and make our communication more 
machine-like. Mm. You know, these kind of political memes and slogans that we can hashtag and you see like the mass of humanity that's saying exactly the same thing um, to make our speech so easily categorizable um, or shareable or targetable in many instances. Um, if we start playing that game, um, well, then by reducing the humanity and the, and the humanness of this activity, um, that's probably the world in which we lose to machines. Uh, and I worry a little bit about that. What about the idea of debate as a form of telling stories? Uh, last weekend, I had the distinguished environmentalist Kerry Arsenault and Bathsheba DeMuth on my show. They're working with Brown University, a new initiative to teach academics how to tell effective stories about the environment. Are the great debaters the ones who tell the best stories? Stories tend to be fetishized these days. We're all supposed to tell stories all the time. But when you set up a debate, when you sit down and think, how am I going to win this thing? Uh, are the winners the ones who tell the best stories? I think that's right. Um, and often it is. Um, and I'm sure there are lots of reasons for that. Um, but a couple that come to mind are um, the first is, you know, so much about debate is not just about the arguments and the individual points or studies that you point to, but a vision of the world that you paint. Mm. And so especially when a debate is about doing something, right, um, subsidizing something or banning something, you essentially create two worlds, don't you? A world where you do that thing or a world where you don't. And one way of framing the choice of the audience in responding to that debate is, do I want to live in world A or B? And the more fully you can kind of create those worlds, um, whether to make it seem attractive or not, um, I think that's often a big part of it. And the other thing that I, you know, and this is something that I think maybe is a limitation often of competitive debate that even I had to learn in, in writing the book is often competitive debaters are very loath to bring themselves into it. And, and we touched on this a little bit with the identity markers, but in my everyday life, I see that people aren't, you know, often with arguments, we sometimes don't have intuitions on whether this fact is correct, whether this is reasonable, whether this is plausible, but we often have a pretty good sense of people and, and uh, a sense of where they might be coming from. And so one of the things that I learned in, in writing this book and growing up, I have friends of mine um, who work in political campaigns, for example, which is a different mode of persuasion. I think you learn a lot about trying to give parts of your book. And so my book now reads almost like a memoir because I wanted to say, you know, as insightful a, a, a set of things as I could muster on debate. But I also wanted it to be clear that it's coming from a very particular place. Um, uh, and, and there are limits to what I can see, but hopefully by showing where it is that I'm coming from and showing the working out, um, it can 
get the conversation going because the reader has more of an understanding of where it is that I'm coming from. So that's probably the second ways in which stories come into it for me. Well, let's end where we began with democracy. Um, we've had many shows, and I'm sure you've done debates on this. It's hard to avoid the subject of citizenship, the crisis of citizenship. We've done yeah. shows, for example, with Phil Clay on rebuilding American citizenship in an age of war where not everyone shares the same burden. I know you're a big fan of the idea of citizen assemblies. I've done some shows about that. I interviewed the Yale political philosopher Helene Landemore, for example, who's a big uh, supporter of citizen assemblies. Do you think that being a good citizen and being a good debater, that, that they're the same things and that we need to work on initiatives like citizen assemblies where people sit around tables, they happen to be to win or lose the lottery and getting involved in these citizen assemblies like the abortion one in, in, in Ireland and learn how to make argument in front of other people? Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure um, being a good debater and being a good citizen are the same thing because the latter is, um, I think, much more demanding. Like, you still have to take the bins out um, to be a good citizen, I think, and, um, and look after your lawn and so on. And, and that doesn't have too much to do with debating. But what I do want to say is that there should be more debate um, whether that be at the level of political institutions um, and, and forms of organize, civic organization, and, that, and that's what you're referring to, but also at the level of schools, workplaces, and, and at the level of the family too, which we spoke a little bit about. The, I do think while being a good citizen and a good debater are not the same, the first is a very important part of the latter. And this is not a new insight at all. I mean, it used to be the case that, so the origins of debate kind of trace the history of parliamentary democracy, but ultimately go back to um, rhetorical education, right? In ancient Greece and there are Eastern counterparts as well, where it was once viewed as the, one of the essential tasks of citizenship and one of the essential capabilities of being a citizen to be able to express oneself and to engage in, in participatory kind of democracy, which through speech making, listening, rebutting, coming up with um, constructive solutions. And so, uh, you know, it feels like we've, we've lost a whole lot um, and, and, We've lost a whole lot in, in creating the kind of politics that we see today. Some of those losses are the loss in shared values. It's the loss in shared truths, but it's also the loss of a shared set of skills, um, which were the skills of being able to debate um, and to be able to debate one another as citizens. And so I don't think you know the book or, or, or debate can necessarily solve all of our problems, but it might reverse or redress that very particular kind of loss that I think we've experienced um, in a lot of countries. Well, you can certainly learn how to disagree well in a civil way with both So's new book, Good Arguments, How Debate Teaches Us to Listen and Be Heard. 
Well, we usually end with um, some uh, uh, some suggestions of further reading by my guest. You had a piece in the Atlantic about books that taught a debate champion how to argue, and uh, it's probably not a great surprise that Malcolm X's uh, autobiography was included in that. We've already talked about Malcolm X. You were also, I was intrigued. Uh, you had the uh, Kennedy book, Crowds oh. of Power, the Bulgarian. Uh, writer on on perhaps the the wisdom or not so much not so wisdom of the crowd. What, why is reading Canetti helpful for a, a debater? It's a, it's a hard book and it's a big book and a very unusual book, right? And um, and when I read that, I just thought I didn't think you were allowed to do that. <laughs> he just sort of says I'm going to describe crowds and how they behave and. It's intensely historical on one level of it being rooted in this period of, of incredible tumult um, in Europe, 20th century Europe, but it has a kind of an aspiration to timelessness too. Like it's trying to discover the physics of, you know, of how large group um, dynamics work. And it was useful for me that there's a... Uh, a kind of an important idea there about how herds and packs um, can sometimes dissolve when you remind the members of who they are as individuals. And it can be something like naming them, you know. And, um, and once you get a sense that you're being seen and heard as an individual, um, that restores some of the sanity um, in what can otherwise be kind of dangerous situations. And in some ways that I, I think that's what debate tries to do is we're all kinds of on different teams, aren't we? You know, some, someone's a libertarian and someone's something else. And, and it can often be easy in the way in which we've described to resort to um, very quick shortcuts like slogans, or I've heard some, some, you know, talking heads say this on MSNBC or on YouTube, so I'm going to repeat it. But what debate says is it restores the primacy of the encounter between two individuals and almost from the beginning tells them to start again. Um, and so, uh, I mean, the, the book is just a good book <laughs> unrelated to my, my, my book, but yeah. I, I see them in, in, in conversation in that way. I was surprised also that you included um, Pankai Mishra's book from yeah. the Ruins of Empire. It's a very good book, but a very angry book. Do you think that sometimes angry books, perhaps also like Malcolm X's autobiography, can that help one debate well? That's a very interesting question. Um, The subject matter is very angry in some ways, isn't it? I mean, I mean, it's it's the response to imperialism is a complex brew, often in in righteous ways of anger and resentment and sometimes despair and all of yeah. Those and given things. the the looting of India by the British, we've had shows about that. It, perhaps it's anger that's totally justified i'm not criticizing exactly. the and so um and so you know when you're quoting the material it does sometimes come through now uh 
it's something that I, I, I wrestle with, you know, and the other book I might have included in, in that list is, you know, Martha Nussbaum has that kind of critique of anger as a force. Yeah, I don't know. You've got Martha, and speaking of Martha's, uh, Martha. <laughs> academic Martha's on the East Coast. I'm not, I didn't see the Nussbaum book. Yeah, you've got the Martha Minow book who teaches at uh, your law school, Harvard, okay. who should we, when should law forgive, which is a That's more right. academic book. That's right. That's right. So I think a little bit about the um, the limits of it as well, and and probably um, speaking very crudely, I think anger serves important functions in terms of the candor that it brings forward, and um, often mm. as a signal of the intensity with which um, someone is experiencing something. But I'd say it's probably. Um, insufficient um often um for a kind of a uh a, a, a good and productive conversation so it, it can be one of the ingredients and can be an important ingredient but um it shouldn't be the only thing finally i was intrigued uh, it's always nice to come across books i'd never heard of and and, and one of the books you include in your atlantic essay is check out 19 yeah. uh, by claire louise Bennett, tell me about this book and, and what its value is to a debater like yourself. It's a terrific book. I mean, it 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 comes in the you know this recent tradition of um, autofiction, right? And um, and and Deborah Levy and and Sheila Hetty and um, Knausgaard are kind of master practitioners of that. Um, but you know, sometimes with those guys, uh, Rachel Cusk is another. You're just kind of like these guys are too eloquent, <laughs> you know. It's like they've got it all. <laughs> it sort of mirrors mine, except they say it in a way that I just couldn't. Um, whereas uh, this book um, is also, I mean, incredibly eloquent and well written. But um, especially in the first chapter, um, I love the voice of it, where it's a it, it's from the perspective of a kind of a schoolgirl and the. Um, the voice is kind of uncertain and ambivalent sometimes. It overreaches in other parts. It corrects itself. It's kind of gurgling, you know, like there's a kind of a, a, a sound element to it. And for me, it sounded a little bit like a person really discovering their voice for the first time, you know, which is like a person getting on a bicycle for the first time. It's sort of, um, it's a bit shaky, there but you know it's the st start of something quite remarkable and um and and i've never seen it drawn better on the page um it's also just another great novel but it it did make me think that moment when someone discovers their voice it's a kind of a, a miracle um uh, but it happens all the time and um and 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 trying to think about that moment as the beginning of something um i found really exciting